The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, our stockings get stuffed with Bain books. Plus, part two of DJ Butler's conversation with David Weber about his classic novel, In Fury Born. And we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David F. Shirerod. Today we bring you part two of a two-part interview that DJ Butler conducted with David Weber about one of Weber's most celebrated novels, In Fury Born, which has just been re-released as a trade paperback complete with a brand new cover. But first, the news. Just in time for the holiday season, the December mass market paperbacks are in. Perfectly portioned to fit inside a regulation-sized stocking, give the gift of Bain mass market paperbacks to friends, loved ones, enemies, strangers, whoever. Everyone is sure to love these Bain books. First up, it's Local Custom, a Leaden Universe classic from, who else? Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Master trader Ur Tom knows the local custom of Liaden is to be matched with a proper bride and provide his prominent clan, Korval, with an heir. Yet his heart is immersed in another universe, influenced by another culture, and lost to a woman not of his world. And to take a Terran wife, such as scholar Ann Davis, is to risk his honor and reputation. But when he discovers that their brief encounter years before has resulted in the birth of a child, even more is at stake than anyone imagined. Now, as interstellar scandal has erupted, a bitter war between two families, galaxies apart, has begun, and the only hope for Ur Tom and Annie is a sacrifice neither is prepared to make. Next up, we've got Agent of the Imperium by Mark Miller. To save the galaxy, a hero must rise again and again. Jonathan Bland is a decider. In the service of the Empire, he has killed more people than anyone in the history of humanity, but to save a hundred times as many. He died centuries ago, but the Imperium reactivates his record personality whenever a new threat appears. We follow Bland through places of legendary glory and massive conflict. For him, it is the battle for personal meaning in a life engineered for perpetual war and conflict. And finally, The Founder Effect, edited by Robert E. Hampson and Sandra L. Medlock. Stake a claim on the future. 2185 CE, humans have conquered our solar system, and now the starship Victoria carries 10,000 colonists to a world beyond. There, those colonists will build a new civilization. There, the original actors upon the stage of a new world will become celebrated in story and song. There, they will become the stuff of legend. For on any frontier, it is the pioneers, 
the brave, the not so brave, the whip smart and the foolish who established the resonances that echo into the halls of the future they hope to build. Call it destiny, call it the founder effect. Stories from Dragon Award winner and New York Times bestselling author David Weber, Dragon Award winners Brad R. Torgerson and DJ Butler, Jody Lynn Nye, Chris Kennedy, Mark Wandry, and more, with an introduction by multiple New York Times bestselling author, Larry Correa. Head on over to Bain.com and check out this month's Charles E. Gannon November ebook sale. To celebrate the release of his new novel, This Broken World, we're offering up a cornucopia of savings on Gannon's backlist. Save $2 per book on the award-winning Kane Riordan series and $1 per book on other Gannon backlist titles. The sale ends November 30th, 2021, and these prices are available wherever Bain eBooks are sold. And that's it for the news. Now part two of DJ Butler's interview with David Weber. Uh, let me ask you a question about the title. Um, yeah. See how far you want to answer it. So the title for the original, what is now second half of the book, right? Path of the Fury mm-hmm. um, implies that uh, Alicia is the Fury or is closely associated with the Fury, which is interesting. That's a Greek mythological uh, a diamond. It's a, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a, uh, it's, it's a sort of a demigod, a demigod. Yeah, three of them and yeah. they punish in particular murderers uh and uh but now now the 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 retitling of the whole is subtly different right in fury born uh sort of takes a step away from that illusion what echoes should we be hearing here okay um all right first i want to tell you that this book the original path of the fury uh, earned me one of the what I consider to be the greatest compliments I was ever given uh, from Roger Zelazny. Okay. Uh, he and I were sitting at a, a table in uh, Virginia sh- uh, shortly after this book came out, when I only had like maybe five, six titles out, I think. Uh, so he was in a hiatus signing and i'd already signed probably every one of my all 14 copies of my books that were at the entire con you know kind of thing and he looked at me and he said uh i finished reading path of the fury last night i'm like oh my god oh my god he read it oh god oh god and i looked at him and i said yes and he said i think it may be the best blend of fantasy and science fiction i've ever read uh, I felt like, you know, 10 feet tall and covered with hair. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, and we wound up, we were, um, I had uh, uh, car problems and we wound up uh, being, st- I wound up being stuck in Virginia for like an extra 10 days. And he was staying with friends in Virginia and I wound up staying with them as well. And I remember sitting on the back porch of a house built before the civil war, listening to thunderstorm pounding on the the tin roof drinking beer with rogers elasney with our bare feet stuck out into the water pouring off the the roof and he was talking to me as if i had 30 books out or he had 10 
And I have to tell you that there are an awful lot worse role models that you could have. Uh, when you talk about a scholar and a gentleman, that was Roger Zelazny. Anyway, um, yeah, it's... The original title is, okay, in Path of the Fury, okay. when Alicia is in Avenger mode. Mm -hmm. Okay. See, when she's a Marine and she's in the cadre, she's in protector mode. That's why she's doing what she's doing, is to protect. Okay in what was the original path of the fury she is in avenger mode mm -hmm. now in some ways that's a thin line because who she is out to avenge herself against or actually to avenge all of her dead against um are the people who are behind all the killing and everything that's been going on. So in taking them out, she would still be protecting others. But she is definitely in the vigilante mode in, uh, in Path of the Fury. And in Path of the Fury, she winds up mortally wounded in like the first 17 pages. Um, and she's dying. Um, and she doesn't die because Tisiphone, uh, who is the last of the three Greek Furies, Alicia's need for, for, for vengeance, for justice, for one last shot, as it were, pulls Tisiphone to her. And Tisiphone makes a bargain with her, which is basically, I will give you justice, but the price may be you and Alicia is like fine kind of thing um and part of the the original novel the the path of the fury is the dynamic between Alicia Tisiphone and the AI warship that uh winds up inevitably <laughs> named Megara <Megara. laughs> yeah. yeah um the uh the, the way that these personalities interact and how they change one another um, in, in the process of the book. Uh, um, and in essence, I recreate the three Greek furies, which is why Alicia is Alicia. I almost named her Alexandria, so I could have called her Alexa, okay, which was before Alexa was a thing, you know, kind That's of thing. Sure. But then I'd have had Alexa Tisiphone and Megara instead of Electo Tisiphone and Megara, you know. So if anybody missed that, now there it is. You know, it's out. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. But, so you're not you're not necessarily fantasy in that we never see where Tisiphone comes from. We see, we have her point of view. She clearly yes. she thinks about Zeus, right? Yes. Yes. But we don't know. This could be an alien intelligence that's got an identity issue. <laughs> Right. Well, well, that that's what that's what most of the people who Alicia who, who come to the conclusion that that yeah. the Tisiphone really exists think. Um, yeah. Alicia doesn't think that Tisiphone doesn't think that. Right. Um, basically, um, 
the 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 central conceit of of uh, Tisiphone's existence is that, in effect, the the Greek pantheon did exist, but it existed because human beings believed in it. Okay, and that pantheon created the Furies. Well, the Pantheon has ceased to exist because people have stopped believing in it. And so Tisiphone and her sisters kind of went to sleep. And, and uh, Alecto and Megara, in effect, died in their sleep. Okay. And Tisiphone is like this, um, she was the toughest of the lot. And she and Alicia begin touching one another much earlier than people thought in reading Path of the Fury was the case. Um, Tisiphone's kind of, she drifts up towards the surface and it's like in her dreams, she sees alternate outcomes and so forth. And she is aware of Alicia's potential to become in effect a, a human fury, okay, if you will. And it's like she kind of drifts up at critical points in Alicia and, and, toward, and she sees the strands narrowing, the, the possibilities of the future narrowing, the probability they're coming together. And she doesn't know if she wants to do that. Okay, it's like, why shouldn't I just go ahead and, and die like my sisters, all right? Because she was designed to be part of a, a, a tripartite persona, almost one being. Um, but when the moment comes, Alicia's need is so fiery that Tisiphone can't turn it down. Okay. And that launches the entire course of the, of the original novel. Um, and Alicia, this is probably a spoiler, but at one point in the book, you realize that Alicia, who is the thing that is so remarkable about, about Alicia DeVries all the way through is the stability of her personality, that she's this incredibly mega competent person, but the thing that everybody who knows her really is aware of is how centered she is, how focused she is, how she is fully capable of wreaking havoc when she needs to, but how she will never wreak one, one millimeter more havoc than she has to. Okay, this is just who she is. Okay, well, by the time you get well into the second half of the novel, she's pretty much lost it. Yep. And so a good part of the last third of the novel is her trying to hang on to this disintegrating person who she's always been and who she can feel disintegrating. She knows it's happening. 
And yet there's a part of her that just wants to embrace the destruction of that person and how that whole thing resolves at, at the end of the book and what it costs for everybody involved. Um, so there's, there's a lot going on here in terms of uh, protector figure, avenging figure, um, of of the, the 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 broken character, and and the thing is that Alicia is such a strong character, and I you see this clearly in the first half of the book that when she breaks, she breaks profoundly. Yeah. Okay, um, and um, this is this by the way is Sharon's my wife Sharon's favorite book that I ever wrote. Interesting. Um, uh, in Fury Born. Uh, and Path of the Fear, excuse me, was was my favorite book, her favorite book, her favorite of all of my books. Um, and I've often thought that if any of my books would be a good fit for, say, a Hollywood production, that this is probably it because I tend to write such big books, such big series that you can't boil them down mm. into a two hour movie format, but you could take this one and split it into two, two hour movies. Okay. The first of her career up to the point at which she leaves the cadre and then pick up with the original path of the fury. And I think that it would be a strong, uh, visually if if the special effects and the sets were handled right visually it could be very strong but the other side to it is the cast of characters is small enough mm. that you can you could in the limited timescape of a movie get into the characters the way that i get into them in the books yeah. because i write such big novels normally okay with such large casts of characters uh, a movie simply cannot, by its very nature, spend the time with that many people that I can in the books, especially when I'm doing it as a series and I can build a character over 10 books. Okay, it is grossly unfair to expect somebody producing a screenplay to be able to capture that in something that people are going to be able to sit through in a day in, in a movie theater. Yeah. Uh, which is why, for example, if Honor Harrington ever goes, I would see Honor Harrington being much more successful as a TV series than as as a movie. Yeah. Okay. Because it's basically written around an ensemble cast that grows and changes, and there's a bunch of stuff going on. One of the things that Alicia DeVry does have in common with Honor Harrington in uh, Path of the Fury, the second half of the book, She's very much the um, the the lone warrior, except that she has you know these two really good friends who go, <laughs> go everywhere with her. But yeah, basically that's what she is. In the first half of the book, she is first a a a newbie marine and then a leader of marines and of cadre men and cadre women. And she does exactly what Honor Harrington does in the sense that 
what they accomplish, they accomplish because of their ability to get other people to perform at a level they wouldn't have otherwise. Okay, I, I, people miss sometimes that like 85, 90% of what Honor Harrington accomplishes, she actually accomplishes by leading her subordinates into accomplishing it. Okay. Um, uh, you know, I mean, when you look at the battles that she fights and, and all, all the rest of it, you know, it's her ability to inspire other men and women to perform at that high level that, that leads to, to the success that they jointly achieve. And that's very much where Alicia is in the first half of In Fury Born. Um, and that, in a way, makes the contrast between who she was and who she becomes even greater. Oh. Um, now, this, this, this first half, second half mm -hmm. split, well, she's basically right exactly in the middle. It's very... You know, I'm not saying you, I, I, I did not realize you'd written in super books, but I mean, there's a clear demarcation mm -hmm. and um, it's interesting to me. Let me kind of uh, run a sort of an interpretation by you and you can kind of react to it. So in the first half, she's not just a Marine, you know, a wasp uh, and, a, and a cadre, like she's an anti-terrorist. Like all of her action is stopping people who are, it's all against terrorists. Right. That's pretty much what she's doing. Yeah. There's like a series of four or five conflicts, including one with the Rish, where ultimately there's even a comparison to jihad. Right. Yes. And uh, with some of some of the Rish ideology. Um, and then it's really interesting because you kind of have two halves of the book in dialogue with each other, because then the question is, look, the people she's been fighting, you know, they feel like they're wronged. Uh, they feel like they're being forced to accept incorporation in the empire and they don't want it. They, mm -hmm. you know, they, they feel like, uh, like their species is being overrun by human beings at this, with this incredible, you know, reproductive rate and they don't want it. And then she becomes the wronged one. And I, I as she, as that was happening, as I was about 55% in the book, I thought, oh, wow. Like, mm -hmm. is this about now Alicia is going to go become a terrorist, Right. Is that and 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 I think maybe the answer is the second half of the book, and you didn't write them in that order, is the is the is, is the answer to the question that you posed later, which is you know are there appropriate responses to being wronged right like that? Are there appropriate military responses? What are the appropriate psychological responses yeah. when you are in fact wrong? Well, okay, one thing let me let me throw out. Uh, the rich are not in danger of being incorporated into the empire. Right. They're in danger of being um, insisted by the empire, uh, of being constrained, losing, losing uh, the ability to grow and expand in ways they want to grow and expand because they'll run up against the empire. But uh, all of the folks that Alicia winds up confronting in the first half of the book believe rightly or wrongly that they are the injured party okay that they are that their their identity is being taken away from them uh that uh, the 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 uh empire that destroyed the the republic is now ingesting the pieces you know etc 
And that in part is again, the result of my love of history, my study of history, okay? I have yet to find the terrorist organization or the violent extremist group who doesn't see itself as the victim, okay? And because we are the victim, we are justified in doing whatever we can to correct the situation or even just to get some of our own back. All right. There's a reason that you sometimes see the phrase, uh, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Okay, because so much depends on the context uh, in which the, the, the violence is being pursued, okay? I think that you have to be honest enough to admit going in that very few human beings are going to pursue organized violence if they feel they have an alternative, okay? If they feel that their way of life, their religion, their political ideology, their whatever can survive and prosper without violence, then they're not going to pursue a violent solution to the problem. So basically violence is normally going to be the resort of the marginalized and the people who think they're losing, okay? Now, it can also be the tool of somebody who has, you mentioned uh, jihadist. I hadn't really thought of this in those terms, but um, jihadism in the sense of imposing a solution or a way of life on someone else because of a religious imprimatur or something like that is kind of in a gray area between my, my statement, what the statement I just made about violence being the tool of the marginalized kind of thing, because it's not, it's not purely self-defense, if you follow me. Now, I think that one thing that's driving a lot of the jihadist violence that you're seeing today. And let me let me say when we're talking about jihadists here that I have nothing but contempt for anyone who decides that all Muslims are jihadis because they ain't. Okay. Um, and that is stupid. And it is simply fueling the cycle of violence to believe that. By the same token, one has to accept that there are jihadists out there and that they are a serious threat. But one reason that they are a serious threat is that they see their world and the world that they believe that God wants them to preserve being destroyed before their very eyes by the onward sweep of Western technology, Western influences, Western everything. And in that sense, jihad as it is being waged, whether it seems that way to us or not, 
is a defensive reaction on their part. Okay. Now their defense is, and by the way, God wants us to make everybody believe the way that we behave and worship God the way that we worship him, etc. So there's, it's a complex brew here. I'm not saying that there isn't what you might call religious imperialism involved in this as well. I'm just saying that like all human interactions, it is a very complex, complicated equation. And context is absolutely essential to understand who these people are and why they're doing what they're doing. Now, what happens in Alicia's case, Alicia is basically my statement. I hadn't thought about it this way when I was writing the book, but in many ways, Alicia is my statement that there are times when violence is not simply justified in self-defense or even in the name of justice, but the only way that self-defense and or justice can be attained. Um, one of the wisest men that I ever knew uh, enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps just in time to miss Guadalcanal, made every other first Marine Division operation of the Second World War, marched out from the Chosin Reservoir in Korea, and retired after his second tour in Vietnam. Okay. His views on when violence was acceptable and slash or necessary were not what a lot of people looking at his background might have thought they were. He told me one time, it is permissible to hit someone with your fist only when you don't have a gun or a knife and both feet are nailed to the floor. And I was like, whoa, you know, and he said, no, no, I said, think about what I said, because unless you would be justified in using a gun or a knife or your feet, you're not justified in punching him either. Okay. And his view was that violence should not be your first resort but it also shouldn't be your last resort. And the degree of violence that you're willing to employ should be graduated. It should be appropriate to the level of the threat to which you are responding. And if you are not responding to a threat, you are not justified in using violence, okay? And that sort of informs a lot of my thinking in my books, okay? Um, another uh, vet who I knew, uh, Colonel Mack, uh, was um, drafted for the Korean War and stayed in and was very early special forces in the class before one at Fort Bragg that wrote the syllabus for the Green Berets, et cetera. 
and he retired as, as a colonel. But he told me one time, he said, um, the second worst moment in any military commander's life comes when the intelligence was good, the plan was good, everybody was drilled, 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 everybody executed flawlessly, you attained all your objectives, and a 19-year-old is bleeding out in your arms, and you cannot put the life back into him no matter what you do. And I said, that's the second worst moment in a combat commander's life. And he said, yep. I said, well, what's the worst? He said, when you realize that this is what you do best in all the world. And there's a lot of that in Honor Harrington. And there's a lot of that in Alicia Debris because both of them do what they do because they knew they do, partly because they know that they do it better than anyone else. And that if someone else does it, more people will die than have to, or it won't be done as well. Okay. So when Alicia's family is killed and her, basically the entire planet that they were on is, you know, they're like 90 survivors from the entire planetary population, including her. When she goes into vengeance mode, it's not just, I'm going to get the people who killed and tortured and raped my family. Okay. It's also, it is my job to stop this from happening. And so that protector that she was in the first half of the book, the first half of her career, is really a huge driver in the Avenger she becomes in the second half of the book. And then the whole thing is complicated by Tisiphone's input. Okay. Alicia is into her, her whole focus for her entire career in the Marines and the cadre was preventing bad things from happening. Okay, Tisiphone's whole focus for her entire career before she meets up with Alicia is in punishing people who have done bad things, not preventing them from doing bad things, but punishing them, avenging their victims. And that's the two currents that flow together in the second half of this book. And Alicia, in, in my judgment as the author, is totally justified in this case in resorting to violence as the tool that will, and she's not just going around killing everybody. I mean, she is, she is looking for, she's trying to get behind the surface of what's going on and find the people responsible for it, which Imperial Intelligence has been totally unable to do. Um, so it's not like she's just a ravening, you know, bloodthirsty monster killing everybody in sight. He doesn't kill, uh, doesn't attack civilians, for example. No, but she never has. I mean, civilians are who she's supposed to be keeping alive. No. Okay. Um, she's very targeted, even when she is at her most, I'm going to kill everybody who was responsible for what happened to my family. She's very targeted. Uh, until 
until the very end when she, like I say, you know, she gets really, really broken in here and she actually reaches a point, which is also a statement on my part of when, how much collateral damage is acceptable in the cause of, for want of a better term, good. Okay. Um, you could, you get into like, for example, looking at World War II. Okay. How many Hiroshima's were justifiable in the name of defeating Japanese militarism? Okay. Um, how many how many Dresdens were were acceptable in defeating Nazi Germany? It's not just a question of acceptable. You get into a question of how many of them were necessary. Because at the end of the day, you have to live with what you did. And if you honestly look at what you did and you discover that, you know what, we killed a whole bunch of people we didn't need to kill. Okay. That's one of the lessons that you have to see to it that you learned that's part of your institutional memory going forward. And I happen to be one of the people who believe that uh, at least the Hiroshima and probably the Nagasaki attacks were completely justifiable in terms of the, uh, the absolutely atrocious casualty totals. And I'm talking here about Japanese civilian casualty totals that would have been involved in any invasion of the home islands. Okay. So from that perspective, if you're going to say, okay, the nuclear attacks, the atomic attacks precluded Operation Downfall and, and, and the, you know, the millions of U.S. casualties and the multi-millions of Japanese civilian casualties, then yes, these two attacks, neither one of which killed as many people as a single firebomb attack on Tokyo killed, um, were totally justifiable. Now, when you look at the fact that the magnetic mines that were being dropped into the Japanese coastal waters had totally shut down effectively their merchant marine which means that ultimately they would have been starved out without any invasion if we had pursued that strategy then you get into ooh, okay well what does that do to hiroshima and nagasaki but you've got the fact that if the japanese government is refusing to surrender and we were reading their mail in the purple codes we knew what they were talking about okay and they were totally not going to surrender okay how many japanese are you going to kill by malnutrition and disease because they can't get food in they can't get oil in for power they you know etc how many are you going to kill that way instead of hiroshima or nagasaki these are the kinds of questions that that people have to grapple with when they're responsible for making the decisions yeah. okay and Alicia, Alicia isn't one of those people in either half of the book. 
in the second half of the book, her actions, in effect, are driving the decisions being made by the people who are at that level of responsibility. Because what she's doing is, is affecting the entire equation um, and, and opening, aven opening some avenues, closing other avenues, okay? And one of the things that I think is, to me, the moment in the book in a lot of ways is when the emperor speaks to her at the end of the book. Mm -hmm. um, and apologizes to her. He broke his oath. He broke faith. Yeah. With yeah. And, 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 you know, and so in a odd sort of way, I break Alicia and I break the emperor both in the course of this book, although the emperor is nowhere near as, as tormented by it as Alicia is, but he's brought face to face with this absolutely extraordinary human being. Yeah who served him and his crown superbly before she was driven out of his service by a decision that he made that seemed like the greatest good for the greatest number when he made it. It was not just a callous, oh, well, what the hell? It was, you know, he, he actually, there actually is a reason that he made the decision that he made. And arguably, it was even the right decision in some ways. Okay. And then after that, she loses her family. She, she goes after the bad guys. And she is instrumental in finally discovering what the hell is going on. Mm. And he has to make it right or as close to it as he can not just with alicia but with himself because what he's doing here is not just apologizing to someone that he's wronged this is the action of a moral man admitting his moral responsibility to himself not just to her and he almost has to do that before he can move forward. See, all of that is going on in the back of my brain while you're, while you're working your way through this, through this book. And I think that's one reason why this book appeals to so many people on so many levels. Um, one thing that is always true is that at any moment in human history, except possibly in the middle of some of our most ter terrible wars, we have always wished that we had leaders who were worthy of their leadership roles, okay? And we're almost always convinced that we don't really, all right? Well, the truth is that there are people out there in leadership positions who are definitely worthy. Even some of the people I disagree with most profoundly politically, I can recognize as worthy human beings doing the best they can coming from a different starting point from where I'm coming from. Now, 
there are a lot of people who no, I don't see it that way. Okay, I see them as gaming the system. I see them as, you know, violating my concept of fundamental human rights, you know, et cetera. Okay, but the, the good guys are out there. We just lose them in the background noise because of all the crap that's going on. Okay. I think that's one reason why people identify with people like Alicia and the emperor. Um, with uh, Otter Harrington, with uh, Merlin Athros and the Safehold books, which I know aren't by Bain. Um, they exist, though, and you wrote them. They exist, yes. But I think the reason that readers identify with them is because these are the leaders, the human beings that we, we yearn for. They're the ones I yearn for. They're the, they're the people who are going to stand by their principles and their friends and their responsibilities no matter what. Um, and we need to be reminded, even if only in fiction, that people like that really do exist. I've known them. Yeah. Okay. Um, I try with varying degrees of success to be one myself i tried to raise my kids to be that kind of person um and when you get to do you remember the movie romancing the stone oh yeah michael douglas and um um kathleen yeah yeah turner right yes yes when she's writing the 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 novel she's getting to the novel at the end of the at the very beginning of the movie and she gets it and she says oh god that's good and she doesn't have any kleenex left she's out of toilet paper and she's bawling you know kind of thing all right every so often as a writer you hit that point of satisfaction with what you've done now, I think of myself as uh, a, a craftsman, not an artist. Okay, I think of myself as a storyteller, not an author. All right, that doesn't mean that there aren't things that I have done as a writer that I am really, really proud of. Okay, individual scenes or moments or whatever. But to me, the story is what this is really all about and the characters who the story is about. And the writing is a tool that I use to try and bring the reader into that awareness that I'm working here with the story and the characters. And to some extent, my feeling is that when the style begins to become too important, it actually detracts from the ability to do that. And there are some people, and Roger Zelazny was one of them, who can be just exquisite stylists and it only drives you further into the characters too many times it's like it pulls you away from the characters because you you know ooh, that was a neat turn of phrase you know or or whatever that was a six-page single sentence without punctuation <laughs> yeah so virtuosic but, but the 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 complex of what i'm trying to accomplish as a storyteller 
is an effort to, and this is, may sound pretentious, I don't mean it to, but it's an effort to get inside the human condition. Okay? Every good story, every good story is about the characters. If you don't care about the characters, it doesn't mean you have to like them. I mean, you could be like, well, I can hardly wait to see this SOB get his, you know, but you're involved. Okay. You need to see how it works out. Okay. If that's not there, then the story is a failure from the get-go. Okay. And for that to be there, all right, you have to, the reader has to be going with you to learn to know these characters, to care about them, to be involved in them. And that means that those characters have to be real people with real flaws, real strengths, real, you know. And they have to make decisions that the reader understands real people could make. And that's what I tried to do with Alicia after putting her into a situation that maybe one-tenth of one percent of human beings would ever approach in terms of both the, the anguish, the opportunity, and the ability to deal with it, okay? And that's the book I wrote a um, long time ago now for the first half. What, 92, was that the release date? On the I think that's right. Yeah, 20, yeah, 2005 or so for the complete, the, the compiled. Yeah, that, that, that sounds about right. That sounds yeah. about right. It's, yeah. You know, it's, I always, I've always, always been uh, pleased with this book. I was really a little bit surprised because I'd already made up my mind when I got ready to do the prequel that I was not going to do a rewrite of the original book, that I was any tinkering I did with it was only going to be to kind of fare the gaps between the, the two. Like I could, I actually was able to take a little bit out of the original um, Path of the Fury because it was essentially um, uh, flashback for events that you saw firsthand yep, sure. when I did the prequel. Okay. Sure. But I was only, that was, that was really basically the only change in the second half of the book. Um, I was really gratified by how well it held up when, when I got to it, that, that I was not tempted to, to go in and, yeah. and, and tinker with it. Um, yeah. Yeah, but well, I loved it, David. It. Oh, I'm glad. Great novel. Glad. Thank you. Now, um, tell us what. Uh, so uh, you've got a lot of books coming out here uh, oh, in the God. near future with Bain, right? Tell us. Tell us. Uh, uh, you don't have to tell us about all of them, but at least tell us about some of them. What are, What are you excited about? Oh my God! All right. Well, um, to end in fire just came out. All right. Well, let's let's go back. Governor, which is the prequel to. It's the first book in a prequel series. It's so not it's a direct like prequel the, to these books. 
like the rise of the house of murphy is that sort of yeah it's basically this is, okay remember i was talking about how the rich game the system etc 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 okay well this is moving into the end game of the rich strategy and it, everything is working for them at this point um but there's a handful of people in the in the federation who cherish suspicions and whatnot and they're generally considered to be the tinfoil hat brigade you know conspiracy nuts etc um and uh one the terence murphy the the guy who becomes terence the first the first emperor of of the empire never set out to do anything of the sort and that's pretty clear in the in in fury born in the little bit that we we say about him he basically he was basically a a david weber character meeting his responsibilities and the snowball got away okay uh kind of thing um but um so so governor is about him Essentially, he's he's part of what they call the 500, which are the, the great families of the Federation. They have a lock on economically, politically, everything else. And all he has to do is go along and he's like, his future's assured. He could probably be prime minister if he wanted to be, et cetera. But he's more interested in doing his duty. And he has to dissemble to put himself into a position where he can do his duty. And once he is in that position, events begin to escalate. And by the end of the book, he's basically regarded as a rebe rebellious warlord when that was the last thing that he wanted to be or thought of himself as. So that's kind of, you know, we're, we're kind of in the same different situation mm -hmm. but a lot of the same forces coming to bear mm -hmm. on my protagonist um, governor, uh, governor has planned sequels is that right oh yes governor is planned as at least the first volume of a trilogy mm -hmm. uh and richard and i have talked about it but with so much going on with uh the covid and other stuff um and the need to rework uh to end in fire um which is the most recent um collaboration with eric flint in the honorverse um my writing schedule looks like a 60 car pileup on the la freeway right now um but to end in fire is out now um, a call to insurrection, which is the next um, uh, collaboration with Tim Zahn and Tom Pope, is now out in eARC. Uh, it's scheduled. Um, I just handed in literally yesterday uh, the next uh, collaboration with Jacob Hollow mm -hmm. from the Gordian Protocol series. Um, the next uh, Star Kingdom novel, the Jane Linskold, is on my computer. I need to do some rewrite on it uh, for um, Tony. Uh, and I'm not even sure 
<laughs> what's scheduled beyond that. I, you know, I know. Um, I think. A lot going on. Oh yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, it's kind of like one of the problems that I have is I have a whole bunch going on and I don't multitask well uh, when I'm writing. Okay, I really focus in on what I'm writing then and my ability to pull out of that universe and jump into this one and then go back again is not good. Um, and that's one of the problems that I get into when I have one of these situations like the need to do all the rework on uh, to end in fire. Um, it, it, it just, that's all I can do at that time. Um, and, uh, I'm also, well, let's see, I hopefully within the next week or so, maybe two weeks, we'll be handing in the next Honor Harrington anthology. Oh, exciting. Uh, which has been hanging fire for like five, six years now. Um, and uh, Tony and I have signed the contracts on a, uh, uh, an anthology set in Norfressa, uh, the, my fantasy universe. And we are in the process of writing the contracts on the next Honor, the next Honor Harrington anthology. Now, in terms of what projects I need to be working on, I've got a couple of short stories that I need to get out of here after I get the, uh, the rewrite done on the Star Kingdom novel. Um, I need to get with uh, Richard to discuss the sequel to Governor and get him started on that. He's planning on, he's been planning on getting started on that sometime in November. So I'm not yet behind on that. Mm -hmm. uh, I need to get with uh, Joel Presby who has begun work on the sequel to uh, The Road to Hell in uh, the Hell's Gate series. Um, I need to get with uh, Chris Kennedy, uh, who is working with me on the out of the uh, out of the dark books for tour. Okay, my next solo writing project has to be the next Safehold novel for tour. Okay. It just has to be. I'm like four or five years overdue on that one. But my next solo project for Bane will be the sequel to. Um, the Sword of the South uh, in, the, in the fantasy universe. Uh, my next solo honorverse novel that I really want to write will be the story of Alfred Harrington's marine career. Um, and in which you will find out that Honor Harrington is the second most dangerous Harrington. Uh, her big teddy bear of a dad who is, you know, like the tree whose branches she grew up under, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's a dangerous, dangerous fellow. Um, it's like uh, the in the last Honorverse anthology, um, the story Beauty and the Beast, where her father meets her mother you find out that the reason that Alfred Harrington is a Navy doctor is because he discovered as a Marine non-com that he was way too good at killing people. Um, and he was afraid of what would happen if he let the monster out again. Um, so, I mean, you know, it's, um, so I really, really want to write that. One of the stories that I'm working on right this minute or need to be working on, but it's not really cooperating with me, 
um, will be, among other things, the story of uh, Horace Harkness and Iris Babcock's courtship um, in, in the Honorverse, uh, which a lot of people have, have wanted from me for a long time. That's the story I'm trying to write right this minute, but I'm not sure that it's going to work. So I may have to save that one for, for a later date. Come back um, to it. Yeah. But, you know, there's, I honestly don't know everything that I, Bain has right now that's scheduling for release by me. But I know that that's like Marla was telling me, there's like for like the next eight quarters or something, they've got something of mine coming out. And I'm like, really? And she's like, well, yeah, you know, kind of thing, you know. And I, most of it is going to be is going to be uh, collaborative stuff. I got one of the problems is that when you get into collaborative projects, it plays hell with your solo writing schedule. Sure. Um, and with the the illness, the concussion, the COVID, the everything else that I've been dealing with, um, that has been been aggravated. Uh, so hopefully I'm going to reach a point here sometime soon where I can actually do a solo novel of my own again. Um, I figure that I need at least two more to wrap up the safe hold arc that I have in mind. Um, and I need at least three, probably four more to wrap up the Sword of the South arc hmm. on, on the other side. Um, and I have no idea how many Joel and I need for the, uh, the multiverse, the, the Hell's Gate series. Um, those are actually the hardest books to write. Hmm. Interesting. Um, well, okay, think about it. You've got three identical planets mm -hmm. okay the Sharonans, the arcanans and us okay with totally different political setups totally different physics and completely different names for every single place on the face of the planet mm -hmm. so in terms of information density that the authors need to keep straight that is definitely the hardest of all of of my series yeah um and uh, it's hard enough that it's kind of, you get into the daunted quotient <laughs> about tackling the project. It's like, well, there's this other thing over here I really need to be doing. Right. It you know. feels very urgent right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to see all that come out. Well, I uh, hope it'll be worth it when it gets there. Oh, David, I'm sure your readers will receive it with joy. Uh, well, you know. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, once again, uh, the book is In Fury Born, out now from Bain Books and Hardcover and Ebook. Uh, David Weber, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us today. Oh, thanks for having me. And, you know, and as those who have seen me before realize, I am the wandering lad when you get into these discussions. It's like uh, I can go far afield uh, effortlessly, effortlessly. No, actually, you know, the first sort of, uh, I kept checking off questions that I had in my uh, notes to ask you because you were just hitting them and almost exactly in the order that I had put them down. So it was great. Ooh. 
that says very scary things about your mind. <laughs> well, that seems like a good note to end that on. <laughs> right. And now another installment in John Ringo's Live Free or Die. Four. Mr. Vernon, Mr. Hazelbauer said, folding himself into the seat across from Tyler. Mr. Hazelbauer, Tyler said, trying not to seem nervous. Weather's coming on fine, don't you think? The farmer said as the waitress scurried up. Adele, I could do with a cup of your fine coffee, if you please, and just a touch of maple syrup. It's getting hard to find, Mr. Hazelbauer, the waitress said, dimpling but I got some in the back just for you. The weather is indeed coming on fine, Tyler said, scratching his head at the notes on the pad. One of the things he liked about Anna's was that there weren't any cameras in the restaurant, so the Horvath, even if they'd noticed changes in one Tyler Vernon, couldn't look over his shoulder at the notes he was making. The problem was trucks were tracked, just about every tractor-trailer in the U.S. had a tracker on it, and while the Horvath might not notice two trucks going to an open field in the middle of the night, might didn't really cut it. He somehow had to get two trucks loaded, quietly, discreetly, then to the pickup point without any possibility of the Horvath noticing. Then there was the product. He'd found it surprisingly hard to find two tractor-trailer loads of barrels of maple syrup. Much of the production was small farms and distilleries. The few large distilleries sent most of their product out to distributors, who then held it in individual-sized packages and doled it out through the year. That Mr. Hazelbauer had had six barrels was luck as much as anything. It was driving him nuts. Strange doings in the area, though, Mr. Hazelbauer said as Adele brought him his coffee. Lots of land trading hands, especially given that things are a bit hard off at the moment. Didn't think that fine old lady, Mrs. Cranshaw, would ever sell her land, and she didn't get near much for it neither. Tyler tried not to chuckle. Turned out that most forensic departments even going quite a few decades back, tended to store questionable samples from remains. And it was amazing what modern forensic systems could tease out samples from the 50s. Natural causes, my butt. And you aren't working near as much as you used to, just a bit of gone, Mr. Hazelbauer said. I've found some additional sources of income, Mr. Hazelbauer, Tyler said. Found a few in my time as well, young man, Mr. Hazelbauer said. Known a few friends as did as well. Some of them thought they could just stop working. Found such good additional sources, as they say. Thing about revenuers, they look for such things. Know a few friends didn't think on that. Don't get to talk much, and I do sore miss the company. But Concord's a long drive. Tyler looked up into blue eyes as innocent as a child.
There are revenuers and revenuers, Mr. Heidelbauer, Tyler said cautiously. Some as have people running about the hills looking for additional sources of income. Some as think they can look for them from above, way above. Them revenuers, Hazelbauer said, tilting back his John Deere cap. Could be, Mr. Hazelbauer, Tyler said, shrugging. Because we are friends and have been for some time, I shall give you my own piece of advice if you will take it from a young man such as me. There may come some men from the city asking you what you would take for your maple trees and distillery. Have been, Hazelbauer said. Don't sell, and tell such as you may find appropriate the same, Mr. Hazelbauer. I'd have all such as you holding maple come spring. You will not believe what maple is about to be worth. Of course, this may involve some problems from revenuers. Them as you mentioned, Hazelbauer said. Them as I mentioned, Mr. Hazelbauer, Tyler replied. Maybe some great trouble from them. They don't take part, the farmer said musingly. They'll be wanting all. Touch hard, that, Tyler said. Touch hard getting all if the right people are holding. Hard in two ways, young man, the old man said. Very hard. Yes, sir, Tyler said, very hard. Hard as granite. This may seem a touch uppity, Mr. Hazelbauer, coming from a newcomer such as I. But have you read your license plate lately? Hmm, Hazelbauer said. This might be the most interesting winter since 56. 56, Tyler said. Didn't make the history books, Hazelbauer said, smiling in fond remembrance. But there's some places up to the hollers. Do you dig down a bit? You might find whole cars still occupied. Don't care for revenuers, not a bit. Shall be making some calls. Discreet calls, Tyler said desperately. Young man, Hazelbauer said, you are quite a smart young feller, and for being a damned rebel born, you are a decent young man. Hard worker for a reb, but when it comes to dealing with revenuers, you shall accept that I am neither stupid nor senile. Yes, Mr. Hazelbauer, I apologize. Tyler paused and thought for a moment, then sighed. The old man was about to grab his cojones and squeeze, he just knew it. But experience was where he found it. About them revenuers, Mr. Hazelbauer. Wathayet, Tyler said as the captain came down the cargo ramp. At least he was pretty sure it was Wathayet. He was dressed differently, and his mohawk-like hair was cut differently. My good friend Tyler, Wathay had said, waving. I hope that these friends of yours are very closed-mouthed. We have the Horvath thinking we're still in Boston at the moment, but they are listening. Don't talk much, 
Mr. Hazelbauer said, coming up out of the darkness. Captain Lafayette? Tyler said, this is Mr. Hazelbauer. Few of his friends are driving the trucks. We need to get started unloading. Fabbit, grab the lift, Lafayette said, stepping off the pad, then looking up at Hazelbauer. You're nearly the size of a Rangora. Bigger, Mr. Hazelbauer said. Fabbit squeaked from the darkness, then Tom Hazelbauer, who was simply a younger version of his grandfather, came by dragging the grav lift loaded with three pallets of maple syrup. He couldn't hardly pull it, Tom said. Where you want it? And how do you get this thing to lift higher? Is all well? Wathayat asked nervously. Very well, Tyler said. Mr. Hazelbauer has me feeling very screwed, but other than that, it's great. Twenty percent is cheap, Mr. Hazelbauer said. I should have charged you more. Did you talk to your big boys? Tyler asked. I didn't have to ask, Wathayat said. I was more or less told they were taking over. But we get our cut. They want to meet. I guess that same warehouse you were at in Boston would do, Tyler said. We'll make all this stuff official then. What about the Horvath? Wathayat asked. When the corporate reps arrive, I'll explain why trying to steal this from us will work poorly, if at all, Tyler said. Don't give not to revenues, can I avoid it, Mr. Hazelbauer said. So they got cannon and machine guns and, I guess, rocks up from there. Don't give not. Don't care for them a bit. And they'll be hard done getting this dragon's tears, is it? I've managed to get pretty close to a monopoly on all held stocks, Tyler said. That's what I'll be trading for. There's about as much as can fill four ships your size. There won't be any more until next spring, so the Horvath won't have anything to take. And taking it will be hard even then. Getting it is hard, and the people that collect it don't respond well to threats. That's what I'll tell your corporate people. What they then do about that is up to them. But if the Horvath think we're just going to cough it up, <laughs> they're wrong. They'll bomb your cities if you don't, Wathayat pointed out. Don't care for cities, neither, Mr. Hazelbauer said. Where do you think revenuers come from? We are encountering some resistance to sale of lands, Mr. Vernon, Lyle said. He still had a very satisfied look. The charges for arranging the transactions had been astronomical. Good, Tyler said. Then stop the purchases. I think we went in fast enough that most of the land and distilleries didn't get run up and cost that much. And anyone who is holding out for what we've been offering, it's because they like what they're doing. I'd like you to arrange a discreet surveillance of Mrs. Cranshaw, by the way. When she realizes what happened to her, I'm going to have one very nasty and devious old lady with apparently access to exotic poisons after my butt. Yes, sir, Lyle said, making a note. If worse comes to worst, we can still slide the information your consultants found to an M.E. and let things take their course, Tyler said. 
So what percentage of the total crop do I have? About 60% of land currently in maple sugar production, Lyle said. In addition, there is land currently in white pine and other timber farms, which comprises an additional 20% of the total land area where sugar maple is harvestable. This comprises, well, a goodly bit of Maine, Vermont, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and the rural areas of Ontario. It is, I checked, the largest land purchase in recent history. I am still, obviously, curious as to your obsession with maple sugar, not to mention where the money came from. Frankly, it's too much to be absolutely illegal, and given the companies who wrote the checks, I think all will be clear soon, Tyler said. He'd blown through pretty much all the money from the deal with Wathayet, but he now had a shipload of Atacirc. Well, 80% of a shipload, damn it. But that's about right. I don't want to own all the maple sugar in the world. Monopolies just don't work well. But if things become difficult and people want to sell because of the difficulties, be ready to start buying again. Now, to the next step. No, I've got a better way to do that. Tyler stopped on the sidewalk outside the attorney's office and extended one arm up and the other down. The one extended up, he circled about his head while pointing to the ground with the other. Come on, figure it out, he said, looking around. Before long, a man in a slightly ill-fitting suit got out of a late-model sedan and walked over. Looking for us? the man asked. Took you long enough, Tyler said. In a few days, exactly when isn't quite clear. Some Glatoon will be visiting. They'll be planning on occupying the same warehouse in Reading as the Spinward Crossing. I'd appreciate you guys setting up a secure room somewhere nearby. Then we could finally get to real negotiations. And the Horvath? The man asked. These guys, the Horvath, are definitely not going to want to touch, Tyler said. Except for the initial exploratory ship, everyone we've been dealing with is bottom rung, even their governmental people. These guys aren't going to be Donald Trump, but they report to corporations and they're here for our maple syrup, all large stocks of which I've managed to lock up. They'll then have all winter to figure out if they want to confront the Horvath over maple syrup. Because believe you me, the people that collect the stuff are not about to let the Horvath take more than a tithe of it. And if they nuke Boston and Washington? The agent asked, sarcastically. I'll do my best to avoid that, Tyler said. How? I'm from the South. We have our little ways. What about Atlanta? Okay, so sometimes they don't work. Gate emergence. What do we have now? The colonel on duty leaned over and contemplated the screen. Looks to be one large ship, the sergeant said. Tentative ID is a freighter. No visible weapons. Four more ships, small freighters maybe. Not a class we've seen. Those are the visitors we were told to expect, the colonel said. I hope. Sir, the tech said. 
What visitors? Close held. Gentle beings, Tyler said, breezing into the conference room. I hope you have been well treated. We don't have much in the way of Glatoon food products, but there's dragon's tears. Thank you, one of the Glatoons said. We have managed to refrain. Oh, dear, Tyler said, waving to the people with him. Gentle Glatoon, Robert Lyle, my attorney of fact for this negotiation, Miss Cody Castilla with our Treasury Department, and Mr. Jason Hazelbauer, who is representing a significant fraction of the remaining holdings of Dragon's Tears, which I have not managed to procure. And you are? Kararid Ungle, Underal Banking. Kanarara Hetancha, Gorku Group. Lithmal Indendu, Hurin Corporation. Ralout Orth, Limara Corporation. We need name tags or something. First, as to Dragon's Tears, the material is in fact maple sugar syrup. Please feel free to access relevant information on our network. Geographically and seasonally highly limited, Hatuncha said. Excellent. Yes, Tyler said, because limited means valuable. And as of this morning, local time, the Huron Corporation representative said, 60% of the operating distilleries and about 30% of the available growing land just transferred to the LFD Corporation. Tyler Vernon, chairman of the board. Masterful stroke, Mr. Vernon. I see that Mr. Hazelbauer, yes, represents many, if not all, of the independents. And you and the independents represented by Mr. Hazelbauer hold all of the stored stocks, the Lamarer Corporation representative said sourly. For which we will be negotiating today, Tyler said. Mr. Hazelbauer and Mr. Lyle will be handling those negotiations. Ms. Castilla, who is an expert in banking, will be working on setting up appropriate banking systems secure from the Horvath so that we can engage in regular trade. But first, a word about maple sugar. Mostly collected by small farmers, Hatuncha said. The Gorku rep wrinkled his nose. Geographically scattered, hard to gather, and it has to be gathered during a very limited period of time. Even if the weather cooperates, any resistance to gathering means a severely reduced crop. Which can be good and can be bad, Tyler said. Less means higher price in general, but if it's simply unavailable, one can see the market dying, new product and all. You'll want to maintain your source of supply. I direct your attention to the initials of my corporation, gentle beings. Various meanings, the underall rep said, but in context, our AI says it refers to your tribal motto. Closer than you realize, Tyler said, with everyone who was in it purely for money or because they thought the Berkshires are pretty. Out of the game, the Horvath will find it rather hard to take. Even the Canadians that gather it are pretty stubborn folk. I take in mind, that's for sure and certain, Mr. Hazelbauer said. Burn the trees first, and maple's practically religion to my family. I suggest you have your AIs study local tribal reactions to force, Tyler said, and their relationship with the rest of the world. 
especially as they would put it, city folk. Because what you are buying is all the maple syrup that's going to be available until next spring. You have a few months to process the cultural implications. Negotiation will be for Glatun credits, gentlemen, not Atasirk. After that, we can trade with regular traders for Atasirk and so on and so forth. And, of course, the usual taxes go to the revenuers, Mr. Hazelbauer said disgustedly. The problem is we really don't know if we're getting a significant amount of credit for this or not. Cody Castilla was in her fifties and severe. Severe face, severe clothes, and severe body language. Their economy is still opaque to us. Our analysts are still trying to process the economic implication of most manufacturing being robotic. Not entirely, Tyler said. Economics comes down to food in the end. What one standard meal costs is another way to say it. I asked Wathayet innocently if I visited his station and if I could eat Glatun food, which I can't, how much a cheap meal would cost. He said an Ormo, whatever that is, was about a quarter credit. He also told me that his full cargo load of trash Atacirc was around 120 credits, and forgetting the earlier question made like that was a huge amount of money. We're up to 50 credits a gallon, Lyle said. We can buy five shiploads of Atacirc for a gallon? We got screwed by them boys, Mr. Hazelbauer said. Which is why I insisted on more than one corporation being represented, Tyler said. Dollars are not going to translate to credits, but work will. How much will it cost to send some of our grad students to Glatun to learn their technologies? How much will it cost to get Glatun to come here to teach? How much will it cost for us to get starter plants and fabers to make more? We should be able to buy more advanced technologies with this. Not much, but it's a start. We need to be able to buy advanced weapons, sorry as I am to say that, Ms. Castilla said, so we can get the Horvath out of our sky. A revenuer wanting to defend the country, Mr. Hazelbauer said, grinning. Well, wonders never cease. Listen, you enough, Tyler said. We don't need tribal differences right now. We can't buy enough weapons even with the full load to matter. Probably. It's possible they have weapons we can set up there that mean no Horvath can survive getting through the gate, but I doubt it. For right now, we need to be important to the Glatun powers that be so that they will bring weapons. And Glatun that know how to use them which is why we're going to geek to 50 credits a gallon, because they're going to make a very nice profit and they will like us. We've pushed the negotiations far enough that they won't take us as pushovers. Hopefully they'll be smart enough to see what we're doing. But if I'm getting their society, there is one more thing we need, and I cannot think of a way to get that. What? Castilla asked. You don't want to know. Mr. Vernon, the Gorku representative said. It is a pleasure to meet you. And you, Mr. Tyler said, grimacing. Sorry, terrible with names. Hatuncha, the glutton said. 
It is easier if one has implants. You really don't have to remember as you think of it. Nice ability, Tyler said. How much does that cost, exactly? Depends on the implants, Hatuncha said with a slight sneeze. A basic implant setup, were there any designed for humans, would be about 50 credits. Full standard civilian, with all the trimmings, as you would put it, runs about 400, depending on your accessories. Can run more, but such people are considered strange. And an AI? Tyler asked. AIs are somewhat limited, Hatuncha said. Only a few thousand are produced a year, and they have strict limitations on action. A very basic AI is several thousand credits, and in your current unfortunate security situation, the Glatun government would never permit an AI to reside in the system. There is one on the freighter which accompanied us, a Gorku freighter, I might add. Ah, Tyler said. And a super cannon to shoot the Horvath out of the sky? There are ground-based defense systems, of course, Hatuncha said. But they are of limited use due to orbital mechanics. Point defense only. You wrote trade hard. You know that. Just hoping, Tyler said. We also have laws against trade in weapons in most cases, Hatuncha said, working his snout. <laughs> Tyler said. See how long that lasts when white and green mountain folks start having off-planet credit to burn. Like they won't find some free trader to supply ray guns. There are things, however, that I'd like to buy that I doubt would bother your government. Nothing weapon-like at all. But I'm not sure if it's off the shelf or something that needs to be customized. Also, I am in the near future going to be interested in doing some movement of stuff to orbit. Again, nothing weapon-like in nature. What exactly do you need? Hatuncha asked. A device that can attach to a satellite that will give a very low delta V but can maintain a charge or power system for a very long time. Basically, something that can move a satellite around the system but doesn't have to be fast. Slow, cheap, and durable is the key. Also, obviously, with a long-range transmitter. I should, as you say, screw you, Hatuncha said. But you're talking about a standard sat pack. They're half a credit. That's if you're buying more than a thousand at a time. And don't try to negotiate. They are very fixed cost. They weigh about a half a pound and have a duration of 73 years. We have very good capacitor technology. But even if you put a lot of them together, you can't get out of your gravity well. Not interested in that, Tyler said. Lifting out of the grab well by one of your ships? Depends on when a ship is here, Hatuncha said, and how big your satellite is and mass. If the ship can just kick it out the door on the way to the gate... Five credits is standard, up to three tons, and the size of one of your cars. If they have space available, a few thousand of them and the ship isn't doing anything else, and the same. There's a fuel cost to getting out of the gravity well, but if they're going that way anyway, the extra mass isn't that much of an issue. The ship we brought has shuttles to pick up cargo. Normally, there would be shuttles on the world, but we unfortunately had to bring our own. 
Do you have satellites to boost now? I don't see you anywhere as involved in the satellite business. Not yet, Tyler said. I'm thinking long term, very long term. I need a thousand sat packs the next time a ship comes through. That's a registered contract. Well, you certainly have the credit. Last question, Tyler said. At this point, I ought to be charging you, Hatuncha replied, sneezing. Feel free, Tyler said, because the answer is going to be long, and time is money. What's the question? Hatuncha asked curiously. Tell me everything you can about the Horvath, Tyler said. Carnivore, omnivore, or herbivore? Reproductive methods? Culture? Monolithic or tribal? How long have they been in contact? What was their tech level before contact? United before contact? Everything. That's 256,000 gallons off planet, Lyle said smugly, which translates to 12.8 million credits. Given the exchange rate as posted to their hypernet, that translates as the planetary economy of Earth, Castilla said, shaking her head. Because all we have is maple syrup, Tyler said distantly. Mr. Hazelbauer, I've sent a quiet message through the hypernet to Wathayat that maple sugar independent distributors now have Glatoon credit to burn. Why, thank you, Mr. Vernon, Mr. Hazelbauer said also that some might want to buy Atacirc for resale, but that you have other interests, Tyler said. I need to go. I have some people down south to see. Going back to your rebel roots? Mr. Hazelbauer asked. MIT for design, Tyler said. Huntsville for production. In a remarkable development, Glatun traders are now swarming to Earth in search of maple syrup? The tasty treat that kitties love on pancakes seems to be ambrosia to our closest extraterrestrial trading partner, and the price of maple syrup has gone, well, sky high. This is Courtney Courtney with Headline News. That was John Ringo's Live Free or Die, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to DJ Butler, and praise, thanks, and gratitude to David Weber. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David Afshirerod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.